appropriate. Page 7. We can use that as our opening prayer for this second talk. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you called us each by name and gave your only Son to redeem us. In your faithfulness, you sent the Holy Spirit to complete the mission of Jesus among us. Open our hearts to Jesus. Give us the courage to speak in his name those who are close to us, and the generosity to share his love with those who are far away. We pray that every person through the world would be invited to know and love Jesus as Savior and Redeemer. May that love transform every element of our society. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church, pray for us. St. Paul, the Apostle, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. In this talk, you'll be happy to know, will be a little shorter than the first one. But what I want to do here is to give you a very practical three-step approach to actually evangelizing another human being, which is what it's all about, right? In that first talk, what I try to do is give you a basic philosophy of evangelization. When we evangelize, we want to help people pass through those three stages that I mentioned earlier, that awakening experience. We want to help them to convert their lives, to have a metanoia, to turn away from their sins. And we want to help them grow in their discipleship. But the real key question is, how do you get people to the point where they trust you enough to allow you to lead them into the, this transforming encounter that they need with the Lord? That's the key question. Now, I have been a priest almost 24 years, so I've seen a lot of things tried in the way of evangelization, including the Jehovah's Witness approach. But what works best in my experience, what I have found to be most effective in terms of a way, a concrete way of evangelizing others, is the old Curcio approach. Has anyone here made a cursio? Some of you have, okay. Have any of you never heard of a cursio? Okay, okay. Yeah, cursios used to be very popular. If you have made a cursio, this talk will be a, somewhat of a review for you, but hang in there. Hopefully there'll be a few new things. Just for those who have not any familiarity with cursillo. The word cursillo is a Spanish word literally meaning a short course. The cursillo is a retreat that was developed, not surprisingly, in Spain, Spanish word, Spanish retreat, back in the 1940s. And it was developed there to renew the church in that country and specifically the laity in the church. It's actually part course and also part retreat. And it provides for many people the kind of awakening experience I talked about in my first talk. I went on a cursillo myself back in early 1990s, 1991, Memory's getting a little fuzzy in my old age, so I'm not sure exactly what year. Um, Father Peter Andrews, who was down in Westerly, came with me. And also a layman, Fran Valier, from my parish, and that experience for Fran was very powerful because it gave him the kind of awakening experience he needed in his life, which eventually led him to apply for the permanent diaconate. And Fran, Deacon Fran, was ordained 
three or four years ago now. But what I really like about Curcio is it doesn't just provide people with an awakening experience. It's more than that. See, other retreats will do that. Searches, you, you've, you've probably, most of you have been on retreats where you've really felt an encounter with God. That's an awakening experience, and that's a great thing. But there needs to be follow-up with any retreat. You don't want to lose what you get on the weekend. Curcio has a great program of follow-up. It really has a program to guide people in their spiritual growth after the retreat. And usually that's done through what are known as Otreas and group reunions. I won't get into particulars of those. They're really not so important, as is this point. Curcio has a tremendous focus on evangelization. If you went on a Curcio weekend, you learned that Christianity is not just about you and Jesus, which is what a lot of Christians think, including a lot of Catholics. It's me and Jesus, and we go on our merry way. Nuh-uh. On Curcio, you learn that Christianity is about you, Jesus, and others, and that you have a responsibility as a layperson, as a priest, as a disciple of Christ, to lead others to the Lord. And it provided a three-step method to do that. Very simple to remember. Make a friend, be a friend, and bring a friend to Christ. That's the Curcio method. And anybody can use it, because we all have friends. <laughs> At least I hope we have one friend or two in this life. So we know what friendship, or should know what friendship involves. If you follow those three steps in dealing with people in your everyday life, see, the thing I like about Curcio is the Curcio people don't tell you that you have to go on the street corner to evangelize or put yourself in a special position in life. You evangelize in your own environment. We all have an environment, our home, our work, where we socialize, where we recreate, places like this. These are all part of our environment. Curcio says that's where you do your evangelization, primarily. You don't need a Bible on a street corner and a stand. You know, you need wherever you live, your family, your friends. That's your environment. And the great thing is, if you follow this, these three steps, you can bring people to the point where they will be willing to put themselves in a place where they can have an awakening experience. And that's what you want. And let me illustrate this again with a biblical example. First chapter of John's Gospel. In that chapter we read these words. The next day John the Baptist was there with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Uh, let me just throw an aside in there. These disciples, one of whom was probably John, the writer of the fourth gospel, remembered the time they had their awakening experience. When you think about it, that line of the Bible was about four. You could take that line right out of the scripture, right out of the story, and the story would still flow fine. But St. John put it in there because he wanted us to know that that was the moment he encountered Christ for the first time. 
That was the moment he laid his eyes on Jesus. He had his awakening experience. It was that powerful for him. He knew the time on the clock. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. Then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. But Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? A little resistance there. <laughs> that happens when you try to evangelize. <laughs> But he goes anyway. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, and said of him, here is a true Israelite, there is no duplicity in him. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you believe because I, saw you, I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And he said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see the sky opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Notice what happens here in this story. First of all, John the Baptist points two of his friends to Jesus. They had already gone through the make a friend and be a friend stage. I mean, they were disciples of the Baptist, Andrew and John. They knew him. They trusted him. They had a bond with him. And so when he said, there's the Lamb of God, they were open to going. If they had just encountered John the Baptist on the street for the first time and John said, look, there's a Messiah, go follow him, these two disciples would probably have said, well, thank you, but really, no thanks. And then what happens? One of the two friends of John the Baptist, Andrew, goes to his brother Peter. We can presume that they were also friends. If they were brothers, they fought a lot, but they were friends deep down inside. And he brings Peter to Christ. And then once Philip is converted, he reach out, reaches out to a friend of his, Nathaniel, and brings him to Christ. This is how it worked even in biblical times. It wasn't magic. God worked through other people to bring folks to the Lord even the apostles themselves. So if it worked for them, why wouldn't it work for us? You know, we complicate evangelization so much. We complicate all these things. Bishop Sheen used to say it was the business of professors to, com to complicate the basic everyday things of daily life. And it's true. And we priests sometimes do that as well. When we preach and when we teach, it really isn't complicated. Of course, it usually takes time. With some people, it might take months, it might take even years to go through that make a friend stage and that be a friend stage before they trust us enough to let us take them to the Lord in some way. So when you're engaged in this kind of evangelization, you've got to pray for fortitude, courage, and you need to pray for perseverance because sometimes it does take a long time. There are some tough nuts out there to crack, <laughs> but God can do it. He did it with St. Paul. He did it with these apostles. He can do it with the people we want to bring to the Lord. 
Let me give you a, a concrete example of how this works in the real world. I asked Fran Valier, my permanent deacon, to put down on paper in a few paragraphs a little summary of how he actually reached out to one man in his former place of employment. Fran uh, builds computers for the handicapped, visually handicapped down in Westerly now. It's a tremendous uh, operation that he uh, has there working for a man named Jerry Swerdlick, a blind man. Um, but he did work at Davis Standard in Pawkatuck prior to that, and that's where this story is set. Now remember, when Fran went through this that he wrote about the other day, he was a layperson, just like all of you. He was, not, he was not even contemplating the diaconate at this point. This was early on after his uh, Curcio experience. But I think it'll give you an idea of how it happens in the real world. Make a friend, be a friend, bring a friend to Christ. He said, it was on a Curcio weekend that I first realized that as a Christian, it was my responsibility to bring Jesus to others. Prior to this, the word evangelization was something I thought televangelists did. But that special weekend brought many truths to light, and for me, it was an epiphany of sorts. The whole idea felt a little odd at first. Seeing me as an evangelizer was a little difficult. First off, the whole idea of going door-to-door, Jehovah's Witness style, that style of evangelization really turns me off. And as far as I know, it turns off a lot of other people as well. So I couldn't picture myself doing this. But the small groups that came together each week as a result of the Curcio movement were a great support tool. I remember one particular friendship at work. I had known a fellow co-worker, John, for many years, but it was always either business or pleasure that was of mutual interest. Never had our faith been a topic of discussion. I met John while I was working on the second shift as the plant supervisor. John was a service engineer for our company at the time. He would troubleshoot and supervise the repair of our products out in the field. One special customer had some urgent needs for a very expensive and difficult repair. The work came to the machine shop on the second shift, and we handled the matter that same evening. In the meantime, John headed to the shop to see how much progress the company was making on his repair. To his delight, we had finished the part and were readying it for shipment to the client's plant. While we waited for the inspection to okay the repair part, John and I had the opportunity to chat for a couple of hours and get to know each other. John was amazed we were able to fulfill the repair order so quickly, and from that point on, he always requested that I handle any emergency repair orders for him. This helped build a trust relationship, even beyond our professional vocations. The honesty and courtesy and eagerness to help each other formed the basis for this trust. My friendship with, God, with John drew, grew over the years. So by the time I had made my Curcio weekend, John and I shared a friendship that was on a more personal rather than professional level. My weekend retreat left me a changed man. As I said, it was the stark realization that it was up to me to bring Jesus to the marketplace. Yet in all my excitement, never did I consider approaching John about it. But God had different plans. It was the Ash Wednesday after I had found my new calling as a Christian that things happened between us that changed not only his life, but others as well. In past years, after receiving ashes, but before going to work, I would return home and wash them off. I felt I looked a little foolish and wasn't prepared for the comments to follow, or at least what I thought would follow. However, this year I decided differently. Not only did did I not feel foolish, but I actually felt like it was a badge of honor to be a fool for the Lord. 
Little did I know what the Holy Spirit intended. About one hour into my workday, as I was exiting my office, I bumped into John in the hallway. He looked at me with surprise and said, Hey, Franny, how are you? Then immediately he noticed the ashes on my forehead and commented about Ash Wednesday. Later he approached me and said how impressed he was in seeing the ashes on my forehead that reminded him about his own faith. This, of course, was the lead-in the Holy Spirit placed before me, so I ran with it. We had a short chat about our Catholic faith, which neither of us had known we shared as something in common. As time went on, John would talk a lot about his desire to get back into his faith. He said he envied the relationship I had with the Lord and commented on how much I had changed for the better over the past year or so. This gave me an opportunity to share with him about my Curcio experience and how grateful I was that I had been asked to attend a weekend, this weekend retreat. He expressed interest in the weekend and, as grace would have it, decided to go to the next men's retreat. Needless to say, John came back from the weekend on fire for the Lord. He was excited about the prospect of sharing his faith with others, but he, like me and many others, felt a little intimidated at the idea. Realizing our dependence on each other for support, John and I decided that we would meet in my office at lunchtime each day. This gave us an hour or so to share our faith. It also gave us the courage and strength to remain faithful to our call to evangelization. And on and on he goes just about how they found strength in each other and, of course, by their common faith in Christ and seeking the Lord together. That's how it's done, practically speaking. And even in my own life and ministry as a priest, this is how evangelization often happens. Be honest with you, I preach every Sunday, I preach a lot during the week, and sometimes you're not sure how much gets through to people, how much doesn't. You know, as a priest, you have to stand in that pulpit with faith and trust that the word is taking root in some people. And sometimes you find out about it, sometimes you don't. But there are times when I realize that the only way somebody's going to get evangelized and really come to the Lord is if I interact with them one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I could tell you a lot of stories about how this has worked in my own ministry. One that stands out and, and stood out in my preparation for this homily involved a Jewish man, of all people. And I got to know this man because his two daughters went to our school when they were younger. And so Howard, God bless him, was very supportive of his family. He had two daughters and his wife, and they were all Catholic and practiced their faith regularly. And he would be very faithful in coming to functions, school functions, and even once in a while would show up at Christmas and Easter Mass, like your casual Catholics do. He was better than some casual Catholics, actually. But I began to meet him, run into him outside of church at the local gym. We have a gym up on High Street there in Westerly. And so I would make it a point when I was there in the afternoon, we would happen to go at the same time, of just having a casual conversation with the guy. You know, I introduced myself at first and we both were sports, are sports fans, so our conversations were very casual to begin with. We talk about football and the weather and school and working out and just small talk. But eventually, it's amazing how it happened. Over time, and it was a number of months, our conversations would get a little longer or we would work out and talk at the same time. You can do that at the gym if you're really astute at it and work at it. 
And we would do that, and sometimes we would even work out together. And the subject matter got a little more intense and a little more focused. The immorality in our culture, that was a big topic. Howard at the time worked at the casino at Foxwoods, so he saw a lot of stuff there. And it really bothered him. It really troubled him, and he shared that with me. He said, Father Ray, you won't believe the people that I've run into there and what they're into and what goes on in their lives. The, that prayer we read at the beginning, the world's in a mess, well, he really felt that, and you could tell. And I would help him kind of unpack that. We talked about the issues his daughters were dealing with, and we talked about the importance of faith. And finally, it got to the point where one day, I won't say out of the blue, because, again, I had made this friend, and I had tried to be a friend for him, giving him direction as I could during our conversations, but he came to the point where he said, Father Ray, I think I want to be a Catholic. He said, you know, I have a great wife, I have great kids, I have a good life, but something's been missing. And I really believe that missing piece is Jesus Christ. I said, okay. <laughs> wow. And you know, this was also the time that Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ had just come out, which was really a topic of conversation for us in our discussions, and it really made a powerful impact on Howard. So he went through our RCIA program, became Catholic the following year, and God bless him, I still hear from him. He's moved away. He and his family has, have moved out west, but he... Uh, I have a blog where I post my homilies and he keeps up to date, he says, with those and every once in a while we'll get in contact by phone or such. But that's how it works. I, I, I saw it work, I've seen it at work even in recent days. I'll share this story. I wasn't going to share it, but I will and move to do so. Maybe it'll help somebody here and, and, and give you some encouragement. A young man in my parish, a married man with three kids, found out two weeks ago that his five-year-old son had a malignant tumor on the kidney. It was very providential how they discovered it, that he was fooling around with his brother and sister, playing around where he shouldn't have been playing, fell, and it must have jarred something, and uh, there was blood in, in the boy's urine, and he, thank God, told his mom and dad. They went and had it checked out, discovered this tumor. And it was a shock, obviously, because the boy looked perfectly healthy before all this happened. So you can imagine how the parents were. But Paul, the father, uh, incredible faith. And he's a young man in his 30s. But he understands this philosophy as well. And he said to me the other day, the good news is the son is, uh, they, they had the tumor operated on, removed, and it was stage one, so there's a very good prognosis for the boy. He should fully recover, praise God. But even in the midst of all this, this Paul, the father, was demonstrating a tremendous faith, even in his conversations with others. And he has a number of friends who are about the same age that he grew up with and before his conversion used to carouse with. <laughs> And he still has a friendship with them. He's made their friendship, made it years ago. He's been a friend over the years. And he said to me, Father Ray, I'll never forget this conversation the other day. He said, Father Ray, he said, I want to use this experience of my son's illness to bring these friends to Christ. And he said to me the other day, he had a conversation with a couple of them uh, that same day. And he said to them, you know, you guys want to know how I'm dealing with this. 
said, I'm dealing with this through my faith, Jesus Christ, and it's because of all those sacraments I receive. He said, you guys tell me that it doesn't matter whether you go to church or not. It doesn't matter whether you go to confession or not. He said, Paul said, I'll tell you, if it weren't for the fact that I go to confession regularly, that I go to Mass as often as I can, that I receive these sacraments, I would not have the strength I have now to deal with this illness in my son. Very powerful, because I know Paul, and Paul, if he's anything, is incredibly honest, right up front. And he said, a couple of these friends have said to him in these conversations, you got me thinking. And who knows? He's made their friendship, he's been their friend, and now it looks like through this he may bring a number of them to Christ. It's not easy to do always, but with God's grace it is possible. And doing this, these acts of evangelization, they have great rewards here. When we see people change their lives, it, it really can affect us in a powerful way. Paul, it was amazing, talking to him the other day, he was excited. I mean, you'd think this guy would be depressed, anxious, upset, worried, concerned. He was excited about what God's doing as he tries to minister to his friends in the midst of his son's illness. And he told me all this before he knew his son was going to be okay. That news finally came yesterday, that his son, stage one, it's not as bad as they thought, and his son's going to be all right. Has incredible rewards. I'll close today, and I'll close my talks with the words that St. James closes his New Testament letter with. He said, and we need all to remember this, whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cancel a multitude of sins. Oh Lord, we thank you that in reaching out to others and trying to bring them to you, not only are they blessed, but we are blessed as well. That's good news for our relatives, it's good news for our friends, it's good news for our co-workers, and praise God, it's also good news for us, because you are a gracious God who loves us all and desires to bring us to yourself and to the eternal life that you died to give us. Amen. Amen. Amen.